Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name is Nick. Um, uh, I am one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to continue this series through Genesis called Like Father, Like Son. It's uh, a series that looks through the first book in the Bible, which is also called Beginnings, to help us understand uh, why some of the patterns that we have um, continue to kind of repeat themselves in our lives um, through our spiritual mothers and fathers. Um, and so I'm going to pray and uh, dive right in. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that it is uh, not just some old uh, dusty book uh, that is uh, a collection of wise sayings but it is your revelation to us uh, of what it means to pursue your children, um, to sacrifice for them, and to bring them into intimacy and affection with you. God, I want to pray that as we, uh, as we look at the stories of our fathers and mothers, that you would open our hearts to what the Holy Spirit says, uh, that you would enable us to see areas and patterns where we can cry out to you for change. But more than anything, God, I want to pray for the empowering of your spirit so that we can live lives that are more Christ-like so that others would be able to see your beauty and your glory. Amen. The story so far where Neil ended off is that Jacob is married. Um, He has four wives, but the two wives that we're going to hear more and more about um, are Leah and Rachel. He also has 11 of the 12 sons. The 12 sons we know will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And the only son that we're waiting to be born right now is Benjamin. And uh, we heard last week that he's gone through a series um, of very difficult processes. Um, Through his father-in-law Laban who deceived him and who robbed him. And now he's past that. Um, And the relationship with Jacob and Laban is settled. And God is leading Jacob into the promised land. The problem is there's unfinished business, and there's unfinished business in the form of a man called Esau, and Esau was Jacob's brother, well, is Jacob's brother in the narrative, and Jacob is the one that stole Esau's birthright. When Esau came back, I'm very tired, you remember the story, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in it, but basically for a bowl of stew, he sold his birthright to Jacob, and he is upset. And there's a, there's a moment in which Jacob realizes that if he's going to travel to where God has called him to travel to in terms of the promised land, that he is going to come into contact with Esau. There's no way of avoiding this. There will be inevitable contact with Esau. But I also think something else has happened. I think what else has happened in Jacob's heart is that as he has been the victim of deception, not just once but twice through his father-in-law, suddenly his heart is maybe a little more open to what he did to his brother Esau. And oftentimes that happens with us, where we are not that aware of the sin that we've perpetrated on other people until we are the ones that are the victims of that sin, and we are like, that is so unfair. And then God begins to whisper to us and says, but that's what you did to so-and-so, that exact thing. And maybe Jacob is sitting there thinking, wow, man, I know the kind of pain that I experienced when I was deceived. And I know the kind of difficulty that I experienced 
And Esau has experienced all of these things. Now, looking at Jacob's character, it's easy to think it probably was more along the lines of like, what is the least amount I can get away with? Um, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt, shall we? One of the things that happens to us is that God will push us into an inevitable circumstance where we deal with unresolved relationships. Um, and God is so kind to us that he will bring these again and again and again, no matter how we try and avoid these. He will lead us to a place of confrontation where we have to confront our own sin and where we have to confront the fact that we need to ask for repentance or we need to offer forgiveness. Now, I want to say this. This is a big deal. This is not a perceived hurt that Esau has experienced here. This is not like try, if you want to go to a party and maybe your ex-girlfriend's there. And that's maybe a little awkward. Should I go? Should I not go? You know, this is not like um, accepting a job and then realizing that the person that gave you the job is a person you rejected for a job a number of years before that. That's a little awkward. That's difficult. No, this, this is a big deal. The last words that Jacob heard about Esau from his mother were these words. And this is recorded in Scripture. Your brother Esau comforts himself by thoughts of killing you. You need to leave. That's how he left that household. Think about the kind of pain that Esau is dealing with where the only thing that brings him comfort is one day I will kill Jacob. That is what's bringing him comfort. And so Jacob knows that this is not kind of a little awkward situation where it's like, hey, bro, I stole your toy, you stole mine, let's just make it up. No, this is a big deal. And we recognize that. And so we pick up in Scripture in Genesis 32 from verse 3 to 8, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation because it's easier to um, read out of those in terms of narrative. Then Jacob sent messages ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. And he told them, give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I've been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. And I've sent these messages to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau, and he is on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. <laughs> Jacob was terrified at the news, and he divided his household along with the flocks and the herds and camels into two groups, and he thought, if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. In other words, he's full of faith that this is going to end well. He's like, he's trusting God. Esau is bigger, he's stronger, he's wilder, and he has had years to stew on this. Uh, pun not intended, okay? <laughs> Do you like that, Chris? Okay, you like that one? Okay. The question we've got to ask ourselves is how do we deal with unresolved relationships? And this portion of Scripture helps us in that question. We're going to be looking at four ways. One is we take the first step, we pray, we wrestle, and then we are patient. So let's look at what it means to take the first step. You don't just trip into reconciliation. You don't just end up in a place where suddenly you realize, oh, I, I, I guess that it's over. It is something that you pursue. It's something 
that you initiate. Jacob initiated contact with Esau, the person that he had harmed, recognizing that it could end up really badly. In, in other words, for, for Jacob, the best case scenario was he's going to wipe out half of what I have. This still needs to be done. And so there's a way in which we step forward as the person that harmed someone or, and this is important, guys, the person that the other party perceives that we have harmed them. Now, that's where most of us come to a place of conflict. I didn't do anything wrong. That person is just hurt. Well, let's see what Jesus says about this. In Matthew 5, verse 23, he says, If you bring your offering or your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have hurt your brother. Not that you have sinned against your brother. But there you remember that the brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer that gift. Now, I do want to say this is within the context of brotherhood. This is within the context of the church of God. But that is an important lesson for us to learn. Most of us read through the idea of taking the first step towards reconciliation with this. Did I do something wrong? That's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, is that person hurt by my behavior? Now, Part of our problem is that we can be right, but not righteous. So you can be correct in what you did or didn't do, but the way in which you did it could have been incorrect. Was Jacob right in taking Esau's birthright? Yeah, Esau sold it to Jacob. Jacob did not twist his hand and say this, Jacob... Jacob made it very um, easy for Esau in the hunger and starvation that he was facing, knowing his character. But Jacob could very easily have stood on his ground and said, I did nothing wrong. Esau sold me his birthright for a bowl of stew, and I'm not going to be reconciled with him at all because I did nothing wrong. One of the questions we've got to ask is even if our behavior is right, is the way in which we dealt with us righteous? One of the reasons I don't preach every week is, um, is not just because we need to hear from the team that leads this community, but it's also because I have to be able to apply what I am teaching everyone so that I'm leading from, from a place of wholeness and not from a place of you should do this. And over the last couple of weeks, this has been a very difficult scripture for me. Let's take the first step. Because there's a relationship in my life where I have done nothing wrong. <laughs> now, it's hard for you to believe. I know. Okay. Let's just take that as a base fact. Where, where literally, I have done nothing wrong. This person has been wounded by me. And so I took the position that I did nothing wrong. And so I'm not going to initiate contact. And it took a meeting with someone in the context of this church to basically tell me to grow up. And even though I did nothing wrong, that I have a responsibility to reach out if I really want to live a Christ-like life when it comes to resolving conflict. So I reach out. We set a meeting. Canceled. Set another meeting. Canceled. So I'm like, I did it. It's done. I set a meeting, he canceled. I set another meeting, he canceled. 
And then I come to preparing this, this sermon. And the Holy Spirit whispers to me and he says, it's not over, Nick. You need to take a first step. Until you are rejected, you continue to take that first step. Because that's what models the gospel. Second thing is we need to prepare in prayer. You know, I love this because his initial move is not one of faith, right? His initial move is like, okay, how are we going to get this right? Okay, which wives don't I like? Put those in the front. Which wives do I like? Put those in the back. Those sheep, yeah, no, these sheep, good ones, put them at the back. He wipes those out. We'll somehow make an exit and escape as long as we've got half of the things with us, right? But this is the first recorded time in Scripture where Jacob prays to God. And listen to this prayer in Genesis 32. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives as you promised me, and I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. That is an understatement. His whole life has been deception and lies and supplanting. I'm not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. When I left home, I crossed the Jordan River. I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me. I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sand on the seashore, too many to count. He hasn't got rid of all self-preservation. There is the sense in which he, he's trying to kind of hustle a solution out, but even he realizes, after he's done this, he's divided his camp already, even he realizes that this is futile unless God is engaged in this. And this is an amazing model for us to pray when we're dealing with um, being uh, unreconciled or, or trying to reconcile a relationship. We've got to acknowledge God's kindness to us. And that's, that's consistently what he does. Acknowledge God's kindness to himself. When he says, God, I'm not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness that you have shown me. He petitions God for protection. He says, God, won't you protect me as I take this step forward knowing that I'm placing myself in a place of danger. And now for most of us, we're not going to be in a place of danger where you're going to go and try to reconcile with someone who's going to try and kill you, okay? For most of us, hopefully for all of us. But, um, but we are going to place ourselves in a very emotionally vulnerable situation where we're saying, God, I need you to protect me in verse 11. And then in verse 12, Jacob reminds himself of God's promise to him. This is a great model for us to pray. You know, God's promise for us is not like the way in which we promise to our kids. Because generally as parents, when we're saying, I promise, we're saying this, I know you don't believe me, but I will do this. When God says, I promise, it's a done deal. It is settled. And so Jacob is not necessarily reminding God of his promise. Like God is not there in heaven saying, oh, dude, thanks, man. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, what did I say? Bless you, sand, stars, yeah, that thing. Yeah, we'll do that, you know. No, Jacob is reminding himself of the nature and character of God as he reminds himself that God has promised to watch over Jacob. So we've taken the first step in reconciliation. We've, we've 
prayed and we've said, okay, God protect me. And now we're in this wrestle. Jacob has separated his, um, uh, his, his uh, wives, his flock, all of those into two groups. But then also he goes ahead and he spends this night alone. And, um, and this is what happens. The attack that Jacob is expecting from physical Esau does happen, but not in the way that he's expecting. This attack happens by some unknown mysterious man. In Genesis 32, verses 23 and onwards, we read this. Then after taking them, he's talking about his camp, to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob alone in the camp. Man, let me tell you something. When you have made a decision to step towards reconciliation, when you've counted the cost, and you're saying, God, please help me in this, and then you're in a place where you're alone and in the dark, you really begin to wonder, oh my goodness, have I done the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? And this is what Jacob is wrestling with. Can I really trust you? Will you really protect me? A man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When this man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won or wrestled with God and man and won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel. He was limping because of the injury to his hip. And even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when a man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. Look, let's admit this is a weird story, right? Okay, let's... Uh, Let's just call it out. It, it's weird. It's a mysterious text. Even the word wrestle makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, wrestling is awkward and sweaty and you often don't know what's going on or who's winning. I mean, look, this is, you know what I mean? Right? This, this helps you understand the awkwardness of wrestling, you know? This is not WWE. This is, you know, two men engaged in combat. Okay, we can take it off. That's enough, you know. <laughs> Probably the closest thing we come to when it comes to wrestling is our Christian culture with hugging, right? It's like, it's kind of almost that awkward, sometimes that sweaty, and you don't know who's winning, um, you know. It's like, am I going in for the side hug? But then they came in with a full hug, and that was like, whoa, that was way too, like, oh, we just hug each other as men, and we're like, boom, boom, we're done, you know. Or we do the A-frame hug, and only the, the tips of our shoulders are touching, because that is purity, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, look, we're used to awkwardness when it comes to this whole thing. My, my favorite is when, when you go in with a handshake, and someone goes in for the hug, and then their, their hands are here, you know. So, anyway, that was for free. I just, you know. why, why, why do we wrestle? Because wrestling with God shows us who we are and shows us who God is. 
It's so interesting that at the end of this wrestle, Jacob is forced to give the angel his name. And he admits that all his life, he's been a scammer, deceiver, liar, and cheat. What is your name? My name is Deceiver. So when we wrestle with God, it's in those moments where God says, Nick, who are you? And I say, well, I'm, I'm a fraud, and I'm worried that people will find out I'm a fraud. I'm super controlling, and I used to think that super controlling was because I'm strong, but I'm actually quite afraid. And part of the reason why I try and control everything is not from a flag of strength, but because I've been wounded in the past and haven't dealt with those things. And so now the way to deal with it is to separate the camp, push the guys that I don't like in the front, keep the guys in the back, make sure that I can control the situation. And then when we wrestle with God, God is like, who, who are you? You're Jacob. Sometimes we don't like this wrestle because we don't like what we are forced to say in terms of who we are. How many of us are afraid that who we are will really be discovered? And that's part of the reason that God will wrestle with us. Let me go. No. We are in the grip of His grace. Literally, Jacob is in the grip of God's grace in a very physical way. We find out who God is. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God, for he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. I know what God is like because God is ultimately powerful and God is ultimately merciful. We know Hosea tells us that Jacob didn't see God. We know that Hosea, the book of Hosea, the prophet tells us that what, what Jacob saw was an angel. But what Jacob is showing us here is the nature and character of God in his power and magnificent mercy. And that the fact that he loves us too much to let us get away with things that will continue to shape our character. We wrestle with God because He shows us who we are and He shows us who He is. We wrestle with God because we end up with a new identity, a new name, and a new posture in that limp. God doesn't just leave us with this revelation of who we were, but He gives us in undeserved grace a magnificent name change. You are Israel. And Jacob, you have wrestled with your father because you were never accepted by your father. You've wrestled with your brother because he was always considered better than you. You've wrestled with your father-in-law and now you've wrestled with me. And it's true to say that you've wrestled with God and man. And it's in the midst of our pain and our confusion and our anxiety and our sadness where God lays hold of us. And, and the best picture I can have of this is that it's happened a couple times in the context of my life where, where someone has been so angry and sad at the same time where you've just needed to hold them and hold them strongly. And they are angry and sad and trying to fight off and they still, there, there's something in them that wants the affection that you're giving, but they're trying to push off and you have to hold tight. And that's what God is doing to Jacob. Jacob, I am holding you so that you know I'm powerful and merciful. And when I let you go, you're going to have a new name. And you're going to walk differently. And that encounter with me is because you have decided to rehearse the gospel. And the thing that you're receiving from me, this undeserved mercy and this undeserved grace, is what you're going to begin to offer people. 
And God holds him. The scripture of laying hold of Christ because he first laid hold of me. It's that sense of what? Who's holding who? No, God is holding us. It may be awkward, painful, but being in the grip of God's grace is the safest place that we can be. Now, a hitch or a swagger is not the same thing as a limp. You know, guys who walk like this, right? I can't do that, you know? I'd hurt my, I'd hurt my knee a couple of years ago, and I walked into the house, and Fallon's like, what's up with your walk, Dad? You know, she thought it was like, okay, this is my walk now. I'm going to walk like this. But now we know that there are certain people that swagger, right? There's a, there's a hitch. There's a... Uh, a different kind of thing. Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to show us that they're better, right? There's this walk that is showing everyone else that they are the man. That's not what God's limp is. God's limp is one of weakness. I mean, I mean, think of the kindness of God. That that Israel, seriously, Israel. See, my my ADD means I cannot not hear it. Okay. Jacob Israel is now limping towards his brother. He can't even walk properly. He's limping towards his brother. And you know the kindness of God? Esau is running towards him. Now imagine this, right? You are limping, uh, which means you probably are not going to be very good at running. Your hip is out of joint. Your brother, whose last words to you, I mean, last words that that you know are he comforts himself with thoughts of killing you. Your men have come back and saying Esau is on the way with 400 men and you are limping towards him. And what do you see? Esau running towards you. That's why the wrestle is necessary. I think I would have just curled up in a ball. I would have been like, see you, Jesus. Here I come, you know. A limp reminds us who's in charge. And a limp reminds us that it is only God's kindness and it is only God's empowerment that enables me to limp towards this person that I have hurt and offer kindness and forgiveness. John Wimber said this about leaders. John Wimber led the uh, uh, vineyard movement. He said this, never trust a leader without a limp. And what he meant by that is, is not let's rejoice in our sin. But he's saying never trust someone who pretends like everything is okay. He's reminded of his weakness and dependence on God as he limps towards Esau. Esau comes towards him, runs, hugs him, and the two cry. Weeping, these two men. You know, the interesting thing about the Hebrew word for embrace is it actually rhymes with the word wrestle. And so Jacob and Esau wrestle in embrace because a lot of that has been taken place by the wrestle that Jacob had with God the night before. Nick, life is not that simple though. You know, in this picture, Esau, believe it or not, is, is, is a, a picture of God's grace towards us. Esau comes, runs, doesn't even mention the past. Doesn't even mention the past. He doesn't even want the gift that Jacob is giving him. He's like, I've seen my brother. There's, there's nothing. He, he has completely 
forgiven Jacob. And it's weird because we look at Esau as the bad boy of Scripture, and yet in this portion, what he does is he gives us just such an amazing picture of the grace of God who runs towards us and says, I don't care. I don't care. I'm glad you're here. You're limped towards me. I will run towards you. Embraces him. Life is not that simple, though, because for many of us, people don't forgive us. There are people in this room that I know that have taken the first step, that have prayed, that have wrestled, and that have gone to this person and said, I'm, I'm sorry, either for what I did or for the way in which you received that, and they were not forgiven. And that's hard. What, what do we do with that? Thankfully, Scripture is not silent on that. In Romans 12, verse 17, Paul tells the church that he's writing to, and he's saying, do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, another way of saying that is, is treat everyone well. Treat everyone to the best of your ability. And I, I love this portion of Scripture. It says, if possible, question mark, as far as depends upon you, question mark, live at peace with all men. Now, Paul is recognizing, and because God sees your heart, that there is only so much that you can do. You take the first step. You pray. You wrestle with God. You limp in your dependence on God towards this person, and this person rejects you. You cannot pick up that burden again because that's not on you. You've done what God has desired for you to do. And there is a freedom of this burden that you release. Now, is it ideal if we have the kind of restoration that Esau and Jacob had? Yes, it's ideal. But is it any less powerful in the context of the change of your life if you do that and you don't receive forgiveness? No, it isn't. Because what has God said? Nick, I've given you a new name. I've given you a new posture. And you have taken the mercy that you've received from me and you've offered that forgiveness to someone else. That's not on you. And if you're here and you're in those kinds of circumstances where you've taken that step and that has been rejected, I just want to set you free because that is what God asks us to do. How they respond is not under our control. Lastly, we need to be patient. You know, wouldn't it be cool if dramatic encounters with God meant an absolute immediate lightning change in our character and the way in which we did things. Now, there are moments, and throughout Scripture, there are moments where that happens. But for the vast majority of us, including our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, dramatic encounters with God do not automatically erase patterns of sin. Dramatic encounters with God help us to remember who we need as we limp in this life. Why am I limping? Because I need God. We read in Genesis 33, after the reconciliation, well, Esau said, let's be going. I will lead the way. And now we see Jacob come back into Israel. Scripture even calls him Jacob. But Jacob replied, uh, you can see, my Lord, that some of the children are very young, and the flocks and herds have their young too, and if they're driven too hard, even for one day, all the animals could die. Uh, that's an exaggeration right there. Please, Lord, go ahead of your servant. 
We will follow slowly at a pace that is comfortable for the livestock and the children, and I will meet you in Seir. All right, Jacob said, but at least let me assign some of my men to guide you and protect you. And Jacob responded, that's not necessary. It's enough that you've received me warmly, my lord. So Esau turned around and started back to Seir that same day. Listen to this. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled on to Succoth. He never went to Seir. He never followed Esau. He exaggerated and he lied just after he has this massive encounter. He's now both Jacob and Israel. And you're like, wow, that's a downer. You really want to end that way? Well, this is the truth. We have to be patient with ourselves and we have to be patient with others. One of the most devastating things we can do is point out to someone who has had this name change, this identity, and is walking with a limp. Hey, that's Jacob behavior. What we should do is say, you are Israel. You don't behave like that anymore. Trust God. You've wrestled. Your name is new. You've got a limp. Philippians 3 verse 12 says, Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of, seize, grasp that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. There is this consistent sense in what we need is the ongoing work in the Spirit because that dramatic moment right there is something we have to remember. Why did Jacob name it? So that he could go back to that and say, Peniel, that's where I saw the face of God. And that's what we need to do in our lives. That moment, that encounter, that church meeting, that prayer meeting, that life group, that devotional time, that time of silence where God met me in that moment, I'm going to name that because there will be times when Jacob sneaks back into my life and I'll have to say, I'm not Jacob. I'm Israel. And yeah, I messed up, but the grace of God covers that because he holds me in the grip of his grace. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Our hope is not in our own strength. Our hope is in the fact that someone else wrestled. And that was Jesus who wrestled in the garden. Now, he didn't physically wrestle. And Jeremy, you can come up. There wasn't a sense in which he, he wrestled with, with a man that other people could see. But, but Scripture tells us that when it comes to making decisions and difficult decisions, we do not wrestle flesh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And it was that in that garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus knows exactly what is waiting for him, He's made that step to reconcile us to himself. He's praying and he's wrestling with God and he's saying, may this cup pass from me, not by will, but yours be done. Leonard Ravenhill says this, Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is simply the evidence of that. And it's in those moments, guys, where we are in our wrestle and where we're like, God, Bless me in this moment. Give me a new name. Help me to walk with a limp that identifies me as a follower of Jesus. It's in that moment where that decision is made and we can trust the empowering of God to help us fulfill that decision.
It's in our moments of Peniel where God, where God says, I met, Nick, I met you there. You are different. And every now and then, Jacob sneaks up. But you are, you are Israel. You have a new name, a new identity, a new posture. Jesus paid the full restitution of what we stole. And we need to recognize that our greatest sin that needs reconciliation is the fact that we're separated from God and the gift that He has given us in His Son. Maybe today you need to take the first step. Maybe today there's a sense in which you recognize there's, there's a lot of shame and guilt, not necessarily towards a person, but in the fact, like Sean said, that there are things that I've done that nobody knows of that I need to release in forgiveness to God. This could be your morning. Maybe there is someone that you know God is leading your paths together and you can't ignore this person forever. And you need to take that first step towards reconciliation. Maybe you're in the midst of a wrestle. Sweaty, tired, confused. Not understanding what is going on here. You need God's grace and understanding and His Spirit to empower you and ultimately God to bless you. God is doing something. Or maybe you just feel the weight and nakedness of unforgiveness in your life. You've exposed yourself to someone and you haven't received the Esau run and hug. My brother, God can bring healing to that. What riches of kindness he has lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is much. Jesus, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for every Christ follower in this room. You've given them a new name and you call them son and daughter. Word says that you have lavished your love upon us so that we could be called sons. You've said no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. God's scripture is just full of name changes. And we are so grateful that we define ourselves by the word Christian. That your name is who we are. And I pray, my God, in the name of Jesus, that as we respond in worship, that your Holy Spirit would lead us in a way of specific response so that we don't look in a mirror and go away unchanged. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.